Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me today. Look, a lot of work has been going into this podcast. I recorded it initially at around December the 8th, December 7th, um, and I've just been doing a lot. My whole work revolves around the festive season, so I've been very busy with work at the same time. I've been trying to finalize this product by getting people to listen to it, working on a, a YouTube clip. I don't know if you saw uh, that drop on my YouTube, but I've been working on that as well. I'm just trying to make this and overall, a very good podcast to drop because it's very, very exciting. Uh, so a lot of time has went into this. I'm so proud to actually be able to release it. So thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for actually listening to this. Uh, very excited. Great podcast with a great guest. Um, so I am joined by Gary Myers. He is a New York Times bestseller. He's been an NFL insider. He's a beat column writer. Well, he was a beat column writer for the Giants and the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, he has some amazing stories. He also wrote um a book which was his new york times bestseller he's wrote four books but this new york times bestseller was about brady and peyton manning he's had some great interviews so he has some amazing stories with some of the best players to ever grace a football field so he has interviews with peyton manning with tom brady so you already guessed they're going to be some good stories in this podcast so please 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 stick around to the end uh, we talk a lot about the two greats the two greatest quarterbacks really to ever play in the game and they played at the same time. So an amazing podcast um, and amazing stories from him. And also his career has been, quite frankly, awesome. Uh, the things he's been able to do, things he's been able to experience and the uh, just overall impact he's had on the game, on the journalist, on the journalist side, insider side, it's awesome. Um, I'm rambling on because I'm really excited for you to listen to everything we talked about in this podcast. And look, if you do enjoy what I do, please go follow me at across the underscore pond. You can find all my links to all of my social media on there. That is the place to be. We just, just, just yesterday dropped a Facebook um, and I'm trying to get that out there a little bit. Uh, I know it's a lot more difficult to get your name out there on Facebook. So please, if you do listen to my podcast, go look me up on Facebook, uh, Across the Pond. It's the Across the Pond podcast. Please go try find me on there. Same logo as always. And also go follow me on Instagram. Because if you can't find me on Facebook, you will find a link on my Instagram. By the time you listen to this, you'll be able to find all my links on my Instagram. So please go follow it there. Please share this podcast if you enjoy it. And look, I'm not going to talk any longer. I know you're probably sick of my voice and you want to hear what you came for. So it's time. I really hope you enjoy this podcast. Great guest. Awesome interview. Take a listen. Enjoy. If you do, tell people about it and support what I do. Thank you very much. And I'll see you in the next episode. But for the time being, enjoy. Okay, welcome to the Across the Pond podcast. Today I'm joined by a very special guest, Gary Myers. Uh, Gary has been a longtime sports journalist in the NFL. He's also a New York Times bestseller with his Brady versus Manning book and is currently working uh, and producing a podcast about Tom Brady. Um, great podcast, great book as well um, from what I've listened to uh, and from what I've heard as well about your book. I sadly haven't got time to listen to you, uh, read your book just yet. I've heard a lot of good things about it. Gary, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me on, Mehmet. It's no problem. Um, like I said, so we're talking a little bit about in this podcast, how you got into sports journalism, uh, you covering the NFL as well, uh, and then we'll go a bit about into the, the, 
the current day NFL. But uh, once again, thank you for coming on. Um, and there's one thing I've got to ask you is you've been around uh, the NFL for since, is it 79, 1979? Yes. Actually, 1978 was the first time I started covering some NFL games. In 78. But you, this, is, this is one thing I've got to ask you. What really made you get into covering the NFL? Obviously, you talk about baseball being America's pastime. The 70s had a super competitive uh, basketball scene. Um, what made you choose the NFL? And what, why did you continue to stick at it? Uh, what I what I always tell people, and I, I, I appreciate the question because I think it's um, it, it's important. I mean, I knew I wanted to write sports. I went to Syracuse University in upstate New York. They have an excellent journalism program there. And um, so when I was first starting out, I had opportunities to, to cover basketball, which I did, to write a little bit of baseball. But the first major beat that I was offered to cover was the New York Giants, which I did for a while before I moved to Dallas to cover the Cowboys. And what I learned about covering football that was really um, attractive for me was that one game a week, which obviously everybody knows they play once a week. And then there were so many stories, different kinds of stories you can write during the week, you know, feature stories, uh, always trying to come up with news, um, some analysis. Whereas in, in baseball and basketball, there's so many games, especially in baseball, right. that you never get to sit back and really reflect on what's going on because you're, you're on to the next game the next day or in basketball, it seems like every other day. And um, so that's what I, I learned. I had covered, you know, like I mentioned, I had done some basketball, I'd done some baseball. And then when I started writing about, writing about football, I just felt it was more, I can be more creative and resourceful um, in, in trying to come up with ideas to write about interesting things during the week without having to continually write about, about bad games. That's not that there's anything wrong with continuing, continually covering games, but I really like to set up in football better. And then, you know, just from a personal standpoint, uh, the, the if you're going to cover sports, especially here, where there's so much travel involved, um, mm -hmm. I really like the idea of football, only eight road games a year, whereas baseball, you're on the road off and on for like five months. So it allows you to have any, you know, a semblance of a normal family life and, and still cover sports. So that was also a really a real advantage of covering football. Do you feel like football has more uh, of a storyline to it? Obviously, you're talking about baseball and basketball sort of being like, it's just the next game, it's just the next game. But does football feel like, like you said, during the week, that it's just stories more to cover and sort of, if anything, more more uh, drama when the, when the season's going on rather than like basketball might be the off-season drama. Football is the season drama. Yeah, without question, because there's always things that happen on Sunday that have a, a carryover effect you know, for a couple of days that you'll write about the previous game. And then you start looking ahead to the next game. So, uh, you know, if there's any controversy that comes out of Sunday's game, that could sustain itself, you know, until Wednesday. And then Wednesday you start looking at the next game and what the importance is in the standings and for the playoffs. If there's a, a player, say, on the Giants who used to play for the Cowboys and they're playing the Cowboys that week, um, he might have some interesting things to say about his experiences in Dallas. 
uh, negative or positive. There's always stories to write in, in football. I, I felt, I feel, and mm-hmm. to me, it was just a lot. It's a lot more interesting than just writing about games every day. And you know, and there's also issues. And if, if I never really got into the the real strategy part of football, I'm not sure how you know the hardcore fans really like the X's and O's. I enjoyed writing about more about the personalities and and controversies and matchups and. And, and things like that. Um, so I, I guess, and, you know, even though baseball is considered our national pastime over here, um, football by far and away is the most popular sport. And it's been that way for a long time. Right. So I, I feel like I've developed a really uh, a good following just because of people's interest in, in football. Not, not saying that people wouldn't don't follow baseball. I mean, I'm a huge baseball fan, but I, I just feel like, the one game a week aspect makes every game so important. And, um, and the previous game is quickly forgotten. So even if your team is like one and four and struggling, all the attention goes on the next game after by the time you get to Wednesday and, and things change so quickly in the NFL, that a team is never really out of it unless they're the jets who were pretty much out of it before the season started. <laughs> but yeah. The jets have been out of it since almost since day one, it feels like, um, well, you've covered some some teams over your time. So you, you started out working with the Giants and you also moved to Dallas as well. Um, you know, when you started working with the Giants, what do you remember first about like, what was your first big piece of work or just your first piece of journalist work that you wrote for the Giants that you remember? Well, it's funny as I've gotten, uh, as the years have gone by and I've gotten older, the first time I was in a football locker room, I was 24 and... Um, I would say about 75% of the players were older than me. And then as, as I got older and, and continued covering, I became as old as most of the players. And then I became older than the players, but still younger than the coaches. And now, you know, I'm the same age as the coaches or older than some of the coaches. And I'm, I've written about some of the players who I covered initially. I've been written, writing about their kids who have made it to the NFL. So, um, <laughs> It's funny how that's evolved. Um, my first big story that I can remember was in 19 – I mean, the one that really stands out. Um, right. In, in 1981, when the Giants were getting ready to draft Lawrence Taylor and pay him a bunch of money, some of the veterans on the Giants' defense – and the Giants weren't very good in those days. Um, some of the veterans who actually were decent players expressed to me – um, unhappiness about how much money the Giants were going to pay Lawrence Taylor compared to what they were making. And they had threatened, and it sounds funny now to think about it, but they had threatened a boycott of training camp if the Giants paid Taylor all that money and then didn't adjust their own contract. And um, and there were some pretty prominent players on the team that told me that. And, I mean, I remember when I was working for the Daily News then, this is right before I moved to Dallas, and um, it, it got a, a lot of – it generated a lot of publicity. And um, I know that it upset – this happened before the draft, and it really upset Lawrence Taylor to think he was going to be ro- walking into a situation where his teammates didn't want him. And didn't support him as well, right? I'm sorry? They didn't support him as well. It's a big, a big thing in football. Oh, right. So um, – 
Um, yeah, yeah, he, he, he got really upset and he was threatening to tell the Giants not to draft him because he didn't walk into a uh, he didn't want to walk into a situation where his teammates immediately didn't like him. And he was a pretty likable guy and, you know, very outgoing and funny. And you can only imagine, a, you know, a 22 year old kid and all these veterans are saying they're not going to show up for training camp if the Giants pay him um, the money that had been rumored. They got it all settled, you know, where the Giants drafted him, obviously. And he actually became really close friends with all those players who were expressing some disappointment over what the Giants were going to pay him. But all they had to do was see him practice once, and they realized anybody was worth that kind of money. It was Lawrence Taylor. You know, when you first heard about – so when you sat there talking to these players and they – you know, express their worry. Was your first thought in your mind, bingo? Or was you sort of, uh, it, it, this is it? Or did you sort of uh, sit back and you were sort of um, listening to what they had to say? When you hear those sort of uh, big news articles, yeah. do, is, does something flick in your mind where you go, this is it? Well, yeah. I mean, I thought I immediately had, you know, a back page, you know, real big headline for my story. But at the same time, I'm thinking, are these guys nuts? The, the Giants hadn't made the playoffs since 1963. This was 1981. Most of them were just really average players, as you can imagine, because the Giants had a losing record. Um, and I'm thinking, why would they even say something like this? Because the Giants go say, okay, fine, you don't want to be here, we'll see you later. Um, but, I mean, that that was the way I looked at it. But as a journalist, I'm thinking – this is a great story. And now after, so after the first player told me, I talked to three or four other guys who all confirmed that, yeah, that's, they had had discussions about this and they were serious. So um, for a position, person in my position, you, you, you dream of stories like this, that you, you, you want stories that will get all this attention. But, you know, I applied my same journalistic principles to it that I do all the time, and I just didn't take one person's word for it. I had to make sure it just wasn't one guy who was upset that it was actually a feeling that was throughout the team. So, again, once I talked to the three or four other players and realized, you know, guys had actually sat down and talked about this, I, I knew it was a real story. Now, I never thought it was going to happen, but that wasn't that wasn't the issue. The issue was that these guys actually sat and talked about doing this and that's what made it a big story. Right. So more more or less, it was a, a, a group locker room feeling and there was willing to be public more or less to the, you know, to you guys, uh, the sports journalists, that, that's how there was feeling. Um, was that sort of your welcome to the NFL moment or did you sort of have a welcome to the NFL moment as a journalist yourself? Was that, was that your first sort of big welcome to the NFL? Like, this is how it can be. Yeah, I mean that was probably my that was my first really big one, and because uh, of the nature of the the subject matter, that it was be something unprecedented. Players not showing up for training camp, protesting somebody else's contract. Usually, players want their teammates to get as much as they can because they feel it only benefit them. Uh, so there was unusual, and then it was Lawrence Taylor who, you know, came with all these all the hype about what a great player he was, and he certainly lived up to it. So um, that was my first big one. I, I mean, I'd like to think that in the years after that, I had a lot of big ones. Right. But that one, you know, in the New York market, 
involving the Giants, involving Lawrence Taylor. Um, that got me prepared for the eight years that I went and spent in Dallas where the Cowboys are more important in Dallas than the Giants are in New York. And then I moved back to New York um, and became a columnist and was, wrote about the Giants and the Jets and the, and the NFL and had many big stories over the years. You know, some of them involving Tom Brady, Joe Montana, um, Michael Strahan, a lot of the big, big name, Bill Parcells, Sean Payton, um, you know, things of that nature. So um, the one thing, if you're going to do what I did for newspapers, for writing for newspapers for over 40 years, mm-hmm. is you really have to have thick skin because um, – you got to write stuff that people don't agree with and, and, and they take it personally and, or the readers aren't going to like, and especially now in the days of Twitter where every has, everybody has a, a forum to express their opinions. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you stuff get, gets you, then you, you really will have a hard time doing this job. It's as long as you believe in, um, in what you write and you know, you didn't cut corners just to get a big story that there actually is a lot a truth behind what you're writing, then, um, then you're fine. And it really is a fun job because you, you know, it's only football. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's not life and death. So it, it is still, it is fun to write about, but I never underestimated the impact of what I was writing because people do take it very seriously. <laughs> yeah, that's true. People do take what, there's a few things that, um, there's one thing I want to get onto a little later. Uh, you probably know what it's about uh, with Tom Brady revolving Josh McDaniels. Um, but that's one of the things where, you know, not only do the, the fans take it seriously, but players take it seriously as well, right? Yeah, and I'm sure you're referring to it a couple months ago before, before training camp started. Uh, I had a really good source tell me that everybody's overlooking one of the reasons that Brady wanted to leave New England. You know, yeah, he was upset about his contract because he never got market value, and he was upset because the the money he saved the Patriots on his contract was supposed to be put towards improving the rest of the team, and he didn't feel that was happening. And he was tired of Belichick and and how strict things were there. But my source told me the one thing that people hadn't even discussed was that Last year, Brady's relationship with Josh McDaniels, the offensive coordinator, on a professional level, had really deteriorated. Mm-hmm. Not on a personal level, because Tom, you know, has very strong feelings for Josh, but just working together, he wasn't getting as much input into the game plan. Um, they were getting into more arguments on the sidelines. Um, it, it seems that Josh was distancing himself from Tom, unlike he had done in the past. And a lot of that could have been because it was pretty well known around the Patriots that last year was going to be Tom's last, his final season in, in New England. Mm-hmm. And so Daniel's change in his behavior could have been dictated by, by Belichick. So I tweeted this, and I don't think I've ever got more reaction on a tweet <laughs> than on this one. It was just one viral, and I was getting calls from radio stations in Boston and newspapers in, in New England and and then um you know I have a really good relationship with, with Brady himself mm-hmm. and he put something on his Instagram uh that was very negative towards me. You know, I wish these reporters would 
become more responsible in, in what they write. Tom was very cooperative with me on my Brady versus Manning book, and he knows I'm very responsible because of the amount of things I double check with them before I wrote it in the book. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't have expected, first of all, I didn't really expect him to respond, but if he was going to respond, I didn't think he'd say, yeah, he's right. You know, <laughs> I thought he would protect himself and Josh McDaniels, which is what he did. It was pretty interesting um, that he took the time and cared enough to a- address this. And again, I was surprised that he did, but wasn't surprised uh, what he wrote. Why do you think he, why do you think that he took the time to address that? Because obviously he's left New England, um, you know, and like you said, he's a good, he's, he's good with personal relationships. You know, you, you talked it down to being a professional reason of uh, their relationship, professional relationship was deteriorating. Um, so why do you think he took the time to back it up when really, and realistically, he, he didn't even have to blink an eye to it? Well, I think he was trying to send a message to Josh um, that, you know, whatever happened between them has no impact on their personal relationship. And I think he was trying to steer people away from thinking that he had a problem with Josh because he didn't want maybe, and I'm just guessing here, but maybe he didn't want that to impact Josh's ability to get a head coaching job um, right. in the future. And, you know, he had a, a 20 year relationship with him and, um, and everybody goes through bumps in the road with their close relationships. It just so happened um you know, theirs was in a very high-profile business. And um, and, they, and they actually hit it pretty well that there was any uh, friction between them. And so I think he just, you know, sat back and figured that um, he didn't want people thinking he left on a bad note with a guy that he was so closely tied to. But, like, that was getting back to what I said earlier about having thick skin. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm very confident what I wrote on Twitter was 100% accurate. And I actually, before I even wrote it, uh, I took a week to to call other people about it. And when I had a, enough confirmation that it wasn't just one person telling me this, although I was very confident with the initial information, when I felt I had enough confirmation, I decided, you know, this is a big enough news item to put out there and, you know, based on the reaction, a lot of people agree with me. And then I had somebody from the Boston media who I really respect send me a text message saying, you know, stand your ground. You're hundred percent correct. So mm-hmm. it, it didn't really matter to me what Tom said publicly. Um, it, it really didn't. And I know people who, you know, wanted to take his side in this and saying, well, if Tom's saying it's not true, then it's not true. How could you know more than Tom? Well, I mean, he had plenty of incentive or motivation to try to steer people away from that story. So, you know, what he what he actually commented on, and it didn't bother me at all. Well, you know, you're talking about getting these, you, you know, you, you had credible sources. You, you're not sort of new to this game, though. You worked as an NFL insider for about 12 years, am I right? Yeah, on HBO, I was uh, on Inside the NFL. I did that for 13 years, yeah. Uh, how tough is it to actually, you know, find these stories and uh, sort of become trusted in the NFL community? Because uh, obviously the people who work in and around the NFL, you know, they're not just going to give news to anyone. How 
hard is it to be in that business and, and do what you did? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, I mean, I'd already covered the NFL for uh, 11 years uh, prior to HBO hiring me. So, you know, and I was fortunate that when I worked in Dallas covering the Cowboys for the Dallas Morning News, that I got to know a lot of people and 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 build relationships. And, and that's what this business really is. It's, it's, it's relationships. It's having people trust you to tell you things. And um, so, and, and the, the interesting thing is, once, once I got on HBO and my, uh, I would say, you know, I became higher profile because, uh, you know, at that time there weren't very many um, NFL insiders on national television. Mm-hmm. So anytime I would go into a locker room, players that I had never met recognized me, coaches I had never met came up and wanted to talk to me. So it opened so many doors being on television that it actually made my job easier because people returned my phone calls and they, they wanted to talk to me. Not that they didn't want to talk to me before, but it's much easier to talk to somebody who knows you um, because of your reputation than it is to just call people cold and hoping that you get a return phone call. So I found that I got more stories when I was on TV uh, than I did working for the newspaper I think people would rather see their stories, you know, rather talk to you knowing you're going to put it out there on TV than just talking to you that it winds up in a local newspaper. I I can't really answer why on that one, but um, I I don't think there's any doubt that being on national TV for 13 years, you know, was a tremendous advantage for me. Do you feel like the players might come to you because they feel you are trusted rather than feel like someone who isn't trusted might, you know, twist the words or, uh, you know, maybe give away too much of what they've said. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that there's a lot, of course, you know, people who, who know you or know of you, they're going to be much more likely to want to confide in you than when somebody that they don't know. I mean, that, that, that seems natural to me. And again, um, being on TV and that, again, that was during a period of time, where the show on HBO, which was on the first showing of it was either Wednesday or Thursday night. We kind of alternated between that, but then it was on many, many times um, for the rest, you know, up until kickoff on Sunday, they would show it a lot on HBO. So if you didn't see it the first time it was on, you'd catch it at another time. And, And because there were really no other shows like it, so many players and coaches in the league would watch it. And the highlights were great. They were from NFL films before. We always had them, the highlights first. Um, so it was, even though it was just a, it was a paid, paid cable channel, but HBO is, it was huge, as you know. And um, so I, I felt like when I was on TV that the league was watching me, you know, in addition to fans and, and whatnot, but that may be more than even the pregame shows because players don't watch the pregame shows for the most part because they're at a stadium getting ready to play in a game. But during the week and the evening, they love watching that show. So I think just by seeing me on TV and seeing the way I conducted myself, that even those who didn't know me felt they can trust me. So when I met them, they felt they already knew me. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a magic television, I guess. 
and in, in a sense, you you sort of knew them as well because you've seen them on TV. So it's sort of like a 50 50 yeah. relationship, right? Of course. Um, and yeah, so a guy like Joe Montana, who was obviously the huge stars and star one of the huge stars in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. The first time I, I got to talk to him by myself, you know, I, I knew that he already knew who I was, which gave me a, a head start on developing a relationship with him. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I knew of all the great players and the big name players in the league, obviously, because of the job that I was doing. And I was working for the, the Daily News at the same time I had the HBO job. So between the two of them, I had a pretty good forum to get my opinions across, both in a column, which I wrote four or five times a week for the Daily News, and then having this tremendous forum on Inside the NFL. Um, th- those were great times. That, that was The business has changed so much since then. But those, and it was before social media and be, even before the internet that um, you really had to work hard to develop a reputation and get people to know you. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I found that a challenge and also a lot of fun. Well, you've interviewed many people while, you know, covering the NFL, while being an insider working for HBO. Um, so obviously when it comes to interviewing players, you're going to have some good stories. Uh, what is your best and worst experience you've ever had interviewing a player, coach, or an NFL figure? Um, wow. See, one, one of the best experiences, well, and this doesn't necessarily relate to them handing me a huge story. It's more about enjoying talking to them um, mm-hmm. and just them being cordial and respectful of the job that I had to do. I mean, I always like talking to Brady and Montana and Phil Sims and and Troy Aikman, uh, guys like that. Um, who, whoever, whenever I would show up, they'd always make time for me and um, didn't consider themselves like they're doing me a favor. They actually enjoyed talking to me. Uh, the worst experience that I've had, worst experiences, um, I guess, you know, back in my, my days in Dallas, and this is going, you know, back to the 1980s, there were some players I just didn't get along with. Uh, a quarterback in particular, his name was Danny White, who took over for Roger Stack. He didn't like me, and I didn't like him. And, you know, I, because he was the quarterback, I, I felt compelled that I had to talk to him. And it was really, most of the time, a very unpleasant experience. Uh, Michael Strahan, when he played for the Giants, we, we kind of had this hot and cold relationship that when he felt like talking, he was the best guy to talk to in the league. He was a tremendous interview. <laughs> But if he was cranky or grouchy and you asked him a question he didn't want any part of, um, he can just really be nasty. Um, but again, I, see, I never took that stuff personally. I, my feeling was, like, if you don't want to talk to me, then all right, then next time you want to talk, I don't want to talk to you. You know, why yeah. should this be a one-way street? And um, I never let players put themselves above me just because they were – they were NFL players and making, you know, millions of dollars a year that, you know, in my own world, my job was as, just as important to me as theirs were, was to them. So why should I let them try to make my job more difficult? 
you know, if they did, then I just wouldn't deal with them anymore. Um, but I, you know, my experiences are usually, you know, pretty good. Um, you know, Tom Coffin, when he coached the giants, you know, invariably he would get mad at me with something I would write and talk about it and we'd talk it out. But I, I, that stuff, it just never really got to me. Like I said earlier, like if you don't have thick skin, you're not going to have a long career. Business isn't for you. I'm sorry. So if you don't have the thick skin, the business really isn't for you, right? Oh yeah, exactly right. Because, um, you know, if you're doing your job right, there are going to be times that you piss people off. It's it's unavoidable, really. Um, but I also find that the fun part about it because, you know, if, if you're if you're confident in what you're writing, and even if it's a negative thing, then you don't have to worry about a player confronting you the next day because you know you did your homework on it and. You got the correct information. Not everything can be positive, obviously. Um, so the, the people who have had a tough time in this business are the ones who express unfounded opinions or write news stories that aren't correct without getting all the facts. Um, and when players get mad at them, they have no defense. Th- those are the uncomfortable situations. But as long as you feel good about what you're writing and you've done the right thing to accumulate the information, then – um, if a player want, ever wanted to discuss a story with me, I never had a problem with that. Do you feel like you're, you discussed this a little bit about in uh, your Tom Brady podcast and also, uh, you know, you wrote a little bit about it in your Brady versus Manning book. Um, but your interview with uh, Peyton Manning wasn't the easiest either, right? Yeah, I, I was kind of, this is actually, I guess it's a funny story now. <laughs> But um, I always had a great relationship with, with Peyton from the, you know, the day before he was drafted was the first time I met him. Mm-hmm. NFL had brought him to New York and we were able to spend some time together. And he always addressed me by name. Peyton is just like that. He can, he just meets you once. He always remembers your name. But um, so the, the Super Bowl, Super Bowl 48 between the Broncos and Seahawks was played here in New York. And I had already come up with the idea of doing the Brady Manning book. I had already interviewed Tom and Peyton was giving me a little bit of a hard time um, that he, he didn't want to talk about this kind of that subject until after he retired and let him know I was going to do the book regardless, you know, with or without him. And I would really appreciate him cooperating. And so by the time the 2013 regular season was over, he hadn't yet committed to doing this with me. And then if you remember that game, Seattle blew out the Broncos 43 to eight. It was one of the two or three worst Super Bowls of all time. And, and Peyton didn't play very well. So in the interview room after the game, there was a bunch of writers around him and, and a bunch of the Broncos had already said that they were embarrassed by how they had played. So I thought it was appropriate to then ask Peyton whether he was embarrassed. And he got, when you asked me before, some, you know, like the worst interviews I've ever had. This, I couldn't put this in that category because it didn't last very long. Um, the <laughs> veins were popping out of his neck and his, his face got all red. And he said, you know, that's a horrible word to use. You know, guys work their butts off to get to this game and we, we did the best we could. 
you know, is em- embarrassed is a word I would never use. And, um, and the only thing that was going through my mind, and I swear this is true, is I'm going, boy, I just blew the interview for the Brady Manning book. This is no way in the world he's ever going to talk to me now. And, uh, so I was thinking it was worth that one question to forfeit his cooperation in my book. And, you know, that, that's the, that was like one of the problems. I, you know, I worked for a daily newspaper and I was trying to write the best column I could. And I felt, felt it was, you know, my job to ask him a question like that. But on the other hand, I nearly, I really would need him to cooperate for the book because how can I write a book about this rivalry if he wouldn't even talk to me? So when the, when his interview was over and he was walking away and he was with the public relations director of the Broncos, I, I did something I'd never really done before. And in this case, I didn't really feel it was required of me, but I was thinking I, I got to do something to try to smooth this out. I said, I called after him and he turned around. I said, Hey, maybe that was a bad choice of words, you know, using the word embarrassed. And he said, I ah, don't worry about it. But I was worried about it because I know how he is and he's, he's very controlling. And I, I really felt that he was going to hold that against me and not do the interview for the book. Now, if it was just my job for the daily news, I wouldn't have cared if he never spoke to me again. I really wouldn't have cared, but because I really felt I needed him to write a, a complete book. Uh, I was concerned about it. And um, fortunately the, the Broncos public relations guy uh, convinced Peyton that it would be a bad look for him, for Brady to cooperate with me on this book and, and for Peyton not to. So about five months after that Super Bowl game, I flew to Denver to interview him. And clearly he still held a grudge because we were just standing in a hallway. He didn't want to go sit down anywhere to talk. He gave me about 17 minutes um, and didn't re- wasn't really expansive on his answers like he usually is. But, you know, I walked out of there with enough fresh stuff from him that I felt like I had covered my bases and that I had done everything I could to get him to cooperate. And if I had to do it over again, you know, would I ask him that embarrassed question? And, the, and he was embarrassed by me asking if he was embarrassed. You know what I mean? Um, I, I would have done it because I didn't feel like I had anything to apologize for. And that's why I felt bad apologizing to him right afterwards because I didn't feel I needed to apologize, but I, I felt like I owed it to myself because this book was so important to me to at least try to get that interview that I wound up getting five months later. So that was a very long thing. You know, that, that was a pretty uh, complicated situation. And also he only, he only gave you 17 minutes, right? Like he, he didn't want to be there any longer than what you guys had proposed. Right. Right. I mean, the, the PR guy had told me that Peyton would give me, like 15 minutes and he, he's such a great interview under normal circumstances that I'm saying, okay, fine. 15 minutes. I'll probably get like three questions in. And I went through almost my entire list of questions in 17 minutes. And, um, you know, it was unfortunate and our relationship, you know, I only ran into him another three, four times 
I've only run into him another three, four times since then. And he, he was pretty cold towards me, but um, again, I, I, I say it again, I don't really feel like I needed to apologize. And certainly all these years later, um, I'm a little mad at myself for apologizing, but if that's what got the interview done, then, you know, sometimes you just have to uh, be a little humble um, to accomplish things. So, I mean, that's what I did. And, uh, you know, certainly I, I've told this story that how Tom was much more cooperative with me than Peyton was. And, and most people think it would have been the other way around just based on their reputation right. and, and how they carry themselves. Well, you, you finally did get the content you were looking for, but rewind a couple months or maybe year uh, years back, actually. I don't know how long it actually took you to, uh, from starting the thought process of writing this book to actually, you know, writing it and getting the interviews in. But what actually, uh, like, made you want to write uh, a book? Because it's not your first book, right? Yeah, that was my third book. I've, I've now written five. But um, so what gave me the idea? Is that what you're asking me, Remit? Yeah, what, what what gave you the idea to write about Brady versus Manning? And did you actually expect it to be a New York Times bestseller? Well, you always hope it will be, but I'm only one for five and my book's becoming a Times bestseller, so it's certainly not expected and very much appreciated. Um, you know, I actually got the idea because I was watching a documentary on TV about the rivalry between Magic Johnson and Larry Bird, and it, got, it just got me thinking – what was the NFL's equivalent to it? Was there something going on now? Is it something from previous years? And it really was clear to me that Brady versus Manning was the best individual rivalry in, in a team sport um, that the NFL has ever seen. You know, there were others like Bart Starr and Johnny Unitas, you know, things of that nature. But um, the fact that up to that point, I think they had played 13 or 14 times. It wound up being 17. Uh, that's what made it so unusual that they met a lot in the regular season, but they are, they already met up until that point. I believe it was three times in the playoffs and it would get to a total of five. I, I just thought it made it really unique that two of the greatest players in NFL history um, at the same position were playing against each other so frequently and, you know, the NFL is more about team rivalries rather than individual rivalries. Mm -hmm. And uh, whereas Tom and, and Peyton were never on the field at the same time, anytime their teams played, it was always, you know, Brady versus Manning, Manning versus Brady. That's what the buildup was. So it was like their rivalry really transcended the sport, which is what I, I thought made it so special. So you've, you know, you've got this idea in your mind. You, uh, you, you sit there, you, you may be right a little bit, uh, but now you've got to get onto the interviews. Now you've got to get into the, the nitty-gritty stuff, talking to the players. So you managed to talk to Brady, you managed to talk to uh, Peyton as well, but also you talked to uh, a few other people, uh, players, coaches, family of Brady and Manning. Um, which interview do you think was the most insightful and most intriguing? and uh, gave you the most information to write uh, in your book? That is a great question, and I have a quick answer for you on that one. It was Tom Brady's father. And the reason he was so good is, you know, I thought Tom was very forthcoming with me. You know, Tom, the football player, was very forthcoming with me 
Um, but and he's much better with me than he is in his his press conferences, where he basically says nothing. Right. But his father <laughs> was so outspoken about everything. I, I still think to this day that his father says what Tom is thinking, you know, what his son is thinking, mm -hmm. but his son can't say it because he's in a position where, for the most part, he has to be politically correct. But his dad is unfiltered. And it, he was just a joy to interview, um, really telling you from the heart how, how he feels about different situations in, in Tom's life that um, were upsetting. You know, it, it, was, it was upsetting when um, he couldn't get on the field of his first three years at Michigan. It was upsetting when the league had an all-out campaign against him in that Deflategate nonsense. And there's, mm -hmm. you know, Tom himself didn't really say a lot about it other than an early press conference. His father continued to criticize the NFL. He called Roger Goodell a liar. And, um, you know, so he was like a go-to person to go in to interview uh, about, about Tom. He was great for my book. He was great for some columns I wrote in the Daily News. Um, so he really stood out. I mean, he really did. And he's, he's a really nice guy. And his relationship with his son is, um, I, I think, is a um, um, is something that kind of sets the standard for a father-son relationship. The, the two of them are very close. Mm -hmm. Do you, uh, you, from, from that, do you feel like you might have... Uh learn the real Tom Brady from speaking to his dad? Yeah, because I think I learned about how difficult it was for Tom to go through um, the frustrating period of time at Michigan, which really helped shape his life. It, it, it turned him into a tremendous competitor. He never takes anything for granted. Um, so even though it was very frustrating for him to sit on the bench when he thought he was better than the guys who were playing, um, I, I really think that's had a long-lasting impact uh, on his career. So, whereas Tom himself was very good talking about it, it's his father who still holds the grudge against Michigan all these years later, all these Super Bowls later, for um, for the way that his son was treated. Um, but I think the, the, the struggles that Tom had getting on the field at Michigan and then being a sixth-round draft pick and then having so much success, I really think that's helped turn him into more of a role model. Uh, kids who you know, don't have it the, the easiest path uh, growing up uh, to get on the playing field. And, and he, he really sets an example for perseverance and and not being the most physically gifted, but this, where the sum of, of all the parts is greater than anything individually, I, I think he really uh, has set the standard for that. Well, what about uh, Peyton? We know him for obviously his, his iconic pizza commercials and his jingles as well. Um, but what is he really like behind sort of closed doors off the field and what we see uh, off the podium? Well, I, you know, up until my experience with the book, I always felt he was, um, you know, extremely cooperative and um, accommodating. 
there's one story that uh, when I was just doing a, a column for the Daily News when the Jets were getting ready to play the Indianapolis Colts that I had arranged through the PR department for Peyton to call me. And when he called me, I was in the, happened to be in the Jets locker room. It was like a Wednesday. And I said, just hold on a second. I'll, I'll go to back to the press room so I can talk to you in quiet. He goes, no, I'm actually calling you before I was supposed to. My fault. Uh, I'll call you back. And I said, no, that's all right. He goes, no, no, I'll call you back. It's okay. So I figured he'll never call me back. And he called me back exactly when he said he was going to call me back, but only to say that um, his team meeting was starting early and it would be okay if he called me in another hour. And I said, sure. And then I'm thinking, there's no way this guy has called me three times. And sure enough, he, he called me again exactly when he said he would. And this time, you know, the timing was right. So th that was the Peyton that I knew. Um, and I just feel like my experience with him for the book and things I've heard since then, uh, especially since he's retired, I mean, he's very controlling in that he wants to be the one calling the shots on a project. And because my Manning book, right. you know, there wasn't anything in it for Tom or Peyton. I wasn't paying them. Um, it, they were just, I would just ask for their cooperation, not their collaboration. And um, I, I just felt like because he wasn't going to be in control of what was written in the book and because Brady had the, the better of the rivalry that he was trying to avoid it. And, and again, like I've heard things since that my perception of him is not incorrect. Um, but I'll tell you this, when, when the camera's on, there's nobody better because he's funny, he's entertaining, he's great in his commercials. And um, I can see why people like him. And I'm not saying I don't like him, but I, I have not had the greatest of experiences with him. Well, you've, you've really been, when, when we talk about Brady versus Madden, I would say, Europe, where with some of the uh, people who know the most about the rivalry um, and sort of have an advantage when it comes to others about talking about them. So you compared Brady versus Manning to the likes of Larry Bird versus Magic Johnson. Um, and, you know, people will always talk about Larry Bird versus Magic and everyone will go, you know, uh, uh, Larry's better or uh, Magic's better. Um, but personally, who would you rather have on your football field and locker room, Prime Brady or Prime Peyton Manning? Well, I would answer the question this way. <laughs> I always judge quarterbacks by how they are in really key moments in the regular season, in the playoffs, and in the Super Bowl. And if you're using that as the criteria, I would say that Peyton Manning is the best regular season quarterback in NFL history. His numbers are off the charts many, many, many 10-win seasons in consecutive seasons. But my ultimate judge is how many rings do you have on your finger? And, and the fact that Tom Brady's been to nine Super Bowls, more than twice as many as Joe Montana, um, and he's won six, which is two more than any other quarterback, and those quarterbacks are Terry Bradshaw and Joe Montana, and, and Peyton got to four Super Bowls and, and won two of them. 
Um, there's no doubt in my mind that history will remember Tom Brady is a better quarterback than Peyton Manning. Um, not necessarily just by the numbers, because Peyton has the edge in some categories, but by the championships. And I, I think that's the ultimate judge. And, and it's not like I'm saying that Brady wasn't good in the regular season. He was great. It's just even greater in the playoffs than he was in the regular season playing against the best competition. And th that's how I judge quarterbacks. And um, um, it's why I, if you're going to compile a list, I would have Brady first and Montana second, and then maybe Johnny United third or Peyton third. Um, and then fifth, I would probably put John Elway. I would have Peyton in the top five, but – <clears throat> Definitely not in the top two. Mm. There's a lot of people that would say Peyton is one of the best to play, but obviously, like you said, it really does come down to who has uh, the uh, the rings on the fingers and who doesn't. Um, but for people who, you know, you know, I think we're sort of going into a time where books aren't as popular and, you know, everyone would rather be on their phones, on Twitter, on social media. So for someone who you know, who hasn't picked up a book in a while and might want to read Brady versus Manning, use five words to describe your book and what they can expect from reading it. The best book I ever wrote. Is that five words? The best book I ever, that's six <laughs> words. Um, okay, it's close enough. It works. <laughs> okay, and what can it they works. expect it works. Uh, by reading it? Well, I, I think it, these two players yeah. define this era of the NFL, in my opinion, that when we look back as time goes by and say, okay, what are we going to remember about the early part of the 21st century? What really stands out? It would probably be that, you know, the, the, the Patriots um, domination and dynasty by getting to so many Super Bowls in, in the first 20 years of, of the century, but on an individual basis, and maybe even greater than the Patriot dynasty is the Brady Manning rivalry because it was so unusual and so compelling and, and happened so many times. I mean, 17 times. I mean, would you believe that Elway and Marino who were considered tremendous rivals played against each other only three times. And, and Marino played 17 years and Elway played 16 years and two of the three happened in Elway's final season, whereas Brady Manning played 17 times. I mean, it's so, it's so unique, and and the games were great. I mean, five playoff games, and um, and three, I'm trying, and four of them were in AFC Championship games, and that's like the edge that Peyton has. He won. Uh, Tom won the first AFC Championship game between them. And then Peyton won the last three, one in Indianapolis and two in Denver. Um, so that's like the only claim that Peyton can make in this rivalry. But um, again, because you're having two of the greatest quarterbacks in NFL history playing at the same time and then playing against each other so much, um, I think you know fans who are interested will really learn a lot about them, not only as players, but as people and their family relationships um, and how they are in the locker room and with their teammates and that they're both known as, you know, world-class practical jokers 
and I, I have a whole chapter devoted to that. Um, again, if, if you're into football, and I assume if you're listening to this podcast, you're into football, um, then, then these two guys are are just really fascinating uh, characters. Yeah, definitely worth to read. Um, from what I've heard in your Tom Brady podcast and the stories you've been able to tell in this uh, this podcast as well, um, if there's any more things that stand out like that, it is it is going to be such a great read. I'm going to have to try and get myself a copy as well because, like you said, how many times they've met is is, is completely ridiculous. And, you know, it is, in my opinion as well, as many other people's opinion, it is probably the best rivalry in football history. Um and you've been able to cover that. You've also been able to cover a lot of other things. So I've got a few questions for you in terms of the current NFL game, um, how it is now. So we did just talk about Tom Brady a little bit. Um, the season is sort of coming to a close, mm-hmm. and I guess you've been following it as well. Uh, the Patriots are 6-6, six and six, and the Buccaneers are 7-5. and five. Do you think that Brady needs Bill? Or does I, Bill I'm going to use Brady? a cop-out here, and I'm going to say I think they need each other. Um, if you had asked me before okay. the season, I would have said that Bill needed Brady more than Brady needed Bill because I, I thought the I thought the Bucks instead of being seven and five would be nine and three or ten and two at this point. Um, and the fact that they're not, I think, is more a reflection on the coaching than it is on Tom himself, because Bruce Arians, who's the Bucks coach, is he believes in a in down the field passing game where Tom is the most successful in the short throws, uh, uh, up-tempo, uh, keep the chains moving where Arians, you know, it's not like Tom has a, a weak arm, but he just doesn't throw it like Patrick Mahomes. And there's too many down the field throws that are high risk and it's not working. I, so I think, and the other thing is that the Bucks are not a very disciplined team. They're a very highly penalized team. So I think it's been eye-opening to a certain degree on and how, how much Bill and, and Tom uh, meant to each other and needed each other. And not saying that neither of them, of them would have won Super Bowls without the other, but they wouldn't have been to nine and they wouldn't have won six without each other, that's for sure. Do you feel like there's ever going to be a, a reunion between the two, or is it? Oh, there'll be a reunion, the but it won't them? be till after Tom retires and he goes back to to Foxborough for Tom Brady Day. Um, <laughs> there won't be a reunion, a player coach reunion, that's for sure. Um, and I, I'm not sure who's going to last longer in, in their current jobs. You know, Brady, as long as he's physically fit, and he is because he's a nut about that stuff. Um, and, and he's playing well. As long as he's healthy and playing well, there's no indication that he wants to quit anytime soon. And really, Belichick the same way. I think Belichick wants to see this rebuilding through in New England and, and prove that he can win without Tom, just as Tom wants to prove he can win without Bill. And I, I think there's definitely a rivalry there on who can potentially win a Super Bowl first without the other guy. Um, but if I, if I had to guess, I would think that Bill's going to coach longer than Tom is going to play, but I wouldn't bet on that. 
they, they both feel like they're never going to stop. Obviously, Tom Brady went in TB, uh, his TB network, and Bill Belichick just being the, you know, next year, next game sort of guy he is. It feels like both of them aren't yeah, going I mean, anytime soon, right? Again, Tom, to me, looks like the same player that he was three, four years ago, except his arm doesn't appear to be as, as mm. strong. But the way he plays, that shouldn't really um, – really impact the results all that much if he was playing in the right offense. I just don't think he's playing in the right offense right now. And, you know, they, they have a bye um, this weekend. And, I mean, last weekend. And I'm interested to see how much they've adjusted. Because, you know, when a team has a bye, they do a lot of self-scouting. And they pick out the plays that they've had the most success with. And they throw the ones that haven't worked. They throw those in the garbage. So – I'll be really interested to see over the last four weeks of the regular season how if, if they've adjusted their offense to really doing what Brady does best rather than what Bruce Arians is accustomed to running. But, um, again, as long as the results are there and he's healthy, I can see him playing. He says 45. I mean, I can definitely see that. Um, but, again, if, if the results aren't there – um, I'm not sure. I mean, he signed a two-year contract uh, in Tampa, but if, if these, if the rest of the season and the next year doesn't go as planned, you know, maybe he'll realize, okay, you know, t- age has caught up to him that it is time to walk away. But uh, at this point, I couldn't really predict what's going to happen with him. Yeah, me either. It's, it's just a waiting game. Um, you know, a little earlier we did uh, discuss the legendary rivalry of Brady versus Manning. Um, and we talked there was never really anything like it before that. Do you think we're ever going to see anything like that again? Uh, or do you think the best well, is coming down? It's so rare. But the the one – and we've, we've been waiting to see if something else would develop. You know, Russell Wilson against Cam Newton, I thought, had a shot. And then, you know, Cam – career got derailed by injury and now he's in the AFC rather than the NFC. So the, the one that I can see right now, and it really will be dependent if they start meeting in the playoffs, but is um, Patrick Mahomes and Lamar Jackson. Mm-hmm. But, but so far, I, I can't remember whether they played two or three times against each other, um, but Kansas City's won all the meetings. And you can't really have a rivalry if it's one-sided. Right you know, and um, I, I thought there was a chance they would meet in the AFC championship game last year and Baltimore lost before they got there. And then going into the season, I thought Baltimore would be in the Super Bowl, but have to get through Kansas City to do it. And now Baltimore is having a very disappointing season. They're only six and five. So it's unlikely they're going to meet in the playoffs. But I'm mean, going forward. Um, that That's one that I can see is is Mahomes and. And in Jackson, and then if, if the Chargers get better, then I can see Mahomes and Justin Herbert because they play in the same division, you know, so they're automatically going to play each other right. twice a year. So, I mean, that's a possibility. But right now, you know, Mahomes is so far out in front of everybody, you know, both regardless of age, but then certainly in his age group, where you need another guy to step up and, you know, assert himself as being a rival to him. And, and, and that just – it, ha- it hasn't happened yet. I think Lamar Jackson's got the potential to do that. But um, 
there's no guarantees for sure. Well, you've been around the NFL for years and you sort of known how the NFL has developed from what it was, you know, very rough, tough league to what it is now. Very different game from what it was in the 70s. You talk about you as a, one of your first big articles was um, with Lawrence Taylor, you know, so that sort of describes the play style then. Um, currently right now, Roger Goodell uh, is the commissioner of the NFL. Uh, he took over in 2006. Do you believe that Goodell is, number one, the future for the league? Do you feel like he's doing the best for them? Or do you feel like it's someone else to take the reins of the NFL? Well, I think he's only going to be commissioner um, for another few years. I, he signed a new contract a couple of years ago. And I think by the time that one is up, he'll have been in the job a little less than 20 years. And I think that's going to be enough. That's just my opinion. Um, I, you know, I know Roger fairly well and um, I don't know who would succeed him. I mean, it's been a controversial uh, 14 years so far. He's, he's made the league a lot of money. He's been a really good businessman, Definitely, but he's been highly criticized for a, a lot of different things, you know, be it, the way he's disciplined players to how he's handled some of these spy gate, bounty gate, deflate gate uh, controversies. Um, a lot of people think he just does what the owners want and all he's concerned about is making money. I know him a little bit better than that. I think he does have a genuine concern for the welfare of the players. He's done a lot since he's been commissioner to try to make the game safer. Um, to the point that it doesn't appear the quarterback can be hit anymore. <laughs> Every time a quarterback gets hit, you see a flag. Yeah, I mean, you don't want it to turn into flag football. Flag but, um, so I, I do think he has the best interests of the players in mind. Um, where the next commissioner takes it, um, I, I know it's the expanding – Media presence is a big deal to the NFL as they continue to make uh, new partnerships with, with different entities like Amazon. Um, I think it's important to the NFL for the games to always be on, you know, network television, uh, regardless of regardless of um, any pay TV deals they might come up with, you know, going forward. I think it it's. We'll never see a day where games are not available on, on free TV here, but they're always looking for different revenue streams. And I think that's kind of the theme of the NFL off the field is um, right now they in a normal year, and this isn't a normal year because for the most part there's no fans in the stands, but in a normal year it's a $15 billion a year industry. And Chargers' goal by – 2025 or 2027, something like that, was to make it a $25 billion industry. And they're well on their way to that. Um, this year is a setback for them and for everybody. I mean, I'm certainly not going to look to throw a benefit for the NFL, which has been a license to print money. But, I mean, they're taking a pretty big hit by not having any fans at the games. But the majority of their money comes through television anyhow. So it's it's not as bad for them as it is 
for some of the other sports. But I think he, overall he's done a good job, although I don't think history will remember him kindly just because there's been so many controversies. Yeah, no, exactly. That's the way I've been I've been looking at it as well. Um, you talked about um, the handling of you know uh, the Flake Gate and how people felt his his ruling was a bit was a bit tough on Tom. And how much how much? Is well, the investigation cost five million dollars uh, that they spent on Ted Wells, and he really just came up with right. uh, circumstantial evidence. But th- they were determined to. Um, to penalize Tom in that. And a lot of people have told me that because Roger never suspended uh, Belichick in, in Spygate, he felt a lot of pressure to make sure that Brady got suspended for this because they felt the police were getting away with a lot. So uh, that investigation, which I think was 243 pages, it produced 243 pages, cost $5 million. And, um, and the best they can come up with was that it was more probable than not that Tom did this or that. I mean, there was nothing really definitive in there. <laughs> well, look, my final question for you is that you've written books. You've got your own podcast out now currently. Uh, you've covered the NFL. Um, you're talking to some of the, the, the biggest, figures, uh, biggest figures in the game. Uh, wrote articles for the news uh, and been on many shows and podcasts. But what is next for Gary Myers? What is your next project, or what is something? Well, you might I, I wish I can tell you in the future the subject of my next book because I am working on it. It's just uh, I've kind of been sworn to secrecy. Not that it's that big a deal. It's just um, the person I'm working with has his own reasons <laughs> for wanting to keep it quiet. But uh, if things go according to plan, it'll come out right at the beginning of the football season in 2021. So you'll know about it uh, soon enough, but I'm, I'm excited about it. You know, I'm, I'm, I've started to write it a little bit. I'm still doing some interviews, but um, I, I wish I can tell you, but I, you know, I made a promise and, uh, and I tend to keep my promises, but um, that's keeping me busy right now. And then I'm adding some extra episodes to this Brady podcast as the season I actually just taped one today. Uh, about where the the Bucks are right now, and what's gotten right and what's going wrong in uh, in Tampa so far, and I'll probably do another one of those. We're calling them bonus episodes. I'll probably do another one or two um, during the course of the rest of the season and in the playoffs. But um, that that's kept me really. Be- I've been working on that podcast since August, um, so it's been a lot of work. But it's been it's the first time I've ever done this, and it's been a, it's been a lot of fun. Right, tell the people a little bit about. Uh, yeah, and your thanks for asking that. Um, where they can find that, by the way. The the podcast can be found on um, Apple Podcasts or you know wherever your listeners usually download their podcasts from, or you can just Google my name and Tom Brady podcast, and it'll come up. Um, the podcast is is really I, I took my Brady Manning book, and I, I basically brought it to life. And that by bringing it to life, I mean, by playing the interviews that I did, that I conducted for the book that are relevant to to Brady. This isn't a Brady Manning podcast, although I did a couple of episodes on their rivalry. This is really just a Brady podcast. And so a lot of the interviews that I did for the book 
I was able to use for this podcast. And then I conducted some new ones to bring it up to date. But um, it's, it's people who either read my Brady Manning book or didn't, I think would really enjoy this because of the context that I put it in, the stories that I tell. And then you can hear Tom talking himself and as well as, you know, a lot of other people that I interviewed for the book. So um, it seems to be pretty popular and people are enjoying it, which I'm appreciative of. And, um, and it's worked out well so far. So um, from a, a listener's standpoint, uh, what can they expect uh, to be hearing from you uh, if they listen to To hear from me after this podcast or I, I'm sorry, I didn't hear the question. Uh, for, as a listener who would be going to your podcast, what can they expect, you know, with the episodes? What oh, I'm sorry. To, um, to hear yeah, and, I mean, uh, learn more I, I really start off talking about Tom uh, as a freshman in high school where even though his team didn't win a game, he didn't take one snap at quarterback. He was on the bench on his freshman high school team. And it, it kind of uh, takes the listener through Tom's career, uh, Michigan getting drafted, um, his first Super Bowl, um, his development um, as a as kind of an icon, uh, his being invited to play golf with former presidents, uh, the the elder of the, of the George Bushes, and then and Bill Clinton, uh, and Jim Nance from CBS is the one who arranged it and played with them in a foursome, and that's the episode that was uh, posted today. It's called Perks and Pranks. It's about getting to play golf with former presidents, and also the the perks part is just what a great practical joker Tom is, and. I have people telling stories about that, but I think you really get an appreciation from who, for who he is, not only as a player, but how he is off the field and how he treats people and uh, how well-liked he really is. Yeah, no, I, I have to agree. I, I, uh, I'm a huge Brady fan, huge Patriots fan. And obviously I started listening to the podcast myself and I have to agree with you. There was a lot of things in there that I had no idea about. You don't realize how tough the guy's journey was until you really sit down and listen to your podcast. So it's a really good piece of work. So uh, congratulations on making that. And I hope, you know, future episodes go good as well. Um, thank you so much for coming on this podcast, though. Your insight into the game, your knowledge uh, and the work you've done is incredible. And I hope um, when you do release this new uh, book that we can expect another New York Times bestseller and we can um, hear, you know, read along with you. Um, thank you for coming on the podcast. Is you? Do you want to drop any of your social sure, media um, or anywhere people can find you? Basically on Twitter, it's, it's Gary Myers, and my last name is spelled M-Y-E-R-S. So it's Gary Myers, N-Y, like New York. And, um, you know, I post things about my podcast on there and then just news around the NFL. So I'm pretty active on Twitter, and people can keep up with, keep up with me that way. Yeah, and um, for your podcast, obviously, like you said, Apple Podcasts and books, I'm guessing anywhere, Amazon related. Yes, you or, can definitely go on uh, Amazon and, and find uh, the Brady, Brady Manning book, book. As, in addition to uh, my four other books. The most recent book I did was on the Dallas Cowboys. So uh, I know the Cowboys are popular worldwide. And that book came out in the fall of 2018. And it's really about how the um, 
the Cowboys have become this $5 billion franchise, even though they haven't been in the Super Bowl for 25 years. So I kind of tell the the behind the scenes story of that. Yeah, no, that that is incredible to say. They've never been to the. They have been to Super Bowl. They have been to Super Bowl in you know, how many years now? And yet they still are That's right. growing. And uh, Jerry Jones's pocket is just getting bigger and bigger, right? Well, Gary, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I've really appreciated your input, the stories you've been able to tell, uh, and uh, thank you so uh, much. For my pleasure, me, anytime. Uh, using your time on our pod. Okay. Thank you so much, Gary. And there we are. Big, big thank you to Gary Myers for joining me today. And a huge thank you to you guys for listening to this episode. If you stayed all the way through to the end, thank you so much. Obviously, you enjoyed it if you stayed all this way. So please make sure you share it around. Make sure you tell your friends if you think they'll enjoy it. Uh, a good listen. Uh, make sure you go check me out, like I said at the start, at across the underscore pond on Instagram. Find me uh, on there. You can also find everything else that I do through my link bio um so hey if you like what i do make sure you stay tuned and make sure you follow me thank you so much for listening thank you again to gary for joining me uh and i'll see you in the next episode thank you